It is good to be back here. It's, I think it's been about a year since being able to preach at this pulpit, and I'm very thankful for the privilege to be back here. If I seem like a new face, my name is John. I serve as the assistant pastor at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Shawnee, so just a sister church over there. And it is so wonderful. I love the privilege of being an assistant pastor because it gives me the privilege to go and see some of our other churches and our presbytery and see the work that God is doing. And we're continually praying for you all here. Uh, and we summit that the gospel would be proclaimed and that the gospel would be heard and the gospel would be believed and that Christ would be exalted here. And so thankful for the work that God is doing here. And it's a privilege to be able to open up God's word uh, this morning with you all. And so this morning, if you have a copy of God's word, be looking at Psalm chapter 90, a very famous psalm that maybe some of you have even memorized portions of and I'll even say this, even before you read, sometimes it's hard to preach a text like Psalm 90 because it seems almost so self-explanatory. And so even in the reading of God's Word here this morning, I, I pray that the Lord would minister to you, that this is His eternal, unchanging Word. And I pray that it would, it would pierce our hearts and that we would come delighting in Christ all the more this morning together. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'll read God's Word for us and we'll Ask him to bless our time together. Psalm chapter 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer now. O eternal God, the one who sits above the heavens and the earth, God, we thank you for your word. What an honor and privilege it is to know you. And Lord, we are able to know you for, Lord, you have sent Christ Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. 
and in him, Lord, we are able to know you. Lord, we ask that as we hear your word, that you would open our hearts, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that, Lord, that we would worship you, we would exalt you, that Christ would be magnified, that Christ would be delighted in, that Christ would be our rest. God, we thank you and we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's uh, safe to say that we live in a day and age where everyone is wise in their own eyes. And what I mean by that is we have information at our fingertips. Right? Just think about in your pockets, in your smartphone. Maybe you're smart and you don't have your smartphone with you during church. That's great. But it's easy to Google things. We live in a DIY or do-it-yourself generation. We live in a generation in a time where information being so readily available, we feel like we are wise to do all things. In fact, the way that we can often know that is when your washer or dryer breaks, or your car needs some fixing, or even if you break an arm, <laughs> you can go on Google and figure out what is exactly wrong even before you go to the doctor, the mechanic, or you ask someone to come and fix that for you or take a look at it. It's all at our fingertips. We already have the information there. And I think, in many ways, we often think we are very, very wise. There's no shortage of wisdom, it seems. Right? There's a tip for everything. If we need help getting through certain circumstances or things that life throws at us, you can go on Google and you'll find plenty of pages of tips, five tips, seven tips, 20 tips, I'm sure if I were to even Google how to write a good sermon on Psalm 90, I would be able to get a bunch of Google links to write Psalm 90, our sermon on Psalm 90. I assure you that's not what happened. <laughs> just, just, just to calm any fears there. But there's no shortage of wisdom available for us, it seems. In fact, it almost seems like we can get by life just being self-sufficient. Right? When problems come our way, the inclination of our hearts oftentimes is not prayer. It's seeking dependence on the Lord for wisdom. It's to ask around, the experts. And if we don't know the experts in our lives personally, we go to the expert of Mr. Google. It's not to say that Google is not a useful tool or the search engines are useful tools or the community around us here. I'm sure there are many skilled folks and wise godly men and women here at Christ's Redeemer. But there's something that is missing, it seems, for us as we consider wisdom, as we consider living by grace. You see, this is what Psalm 90 is really getting at. This is a unique psalm in the sense that when you think of the psalms, the first person that comes to your mind is David, and maybe some others, the sons of Korah, this goes on, but hardly ever do people really think Moses. Well, here we've got a psalm from Moses, a prayer, really. And just for us, as we dive into Psalm 90, scholars will debate what exactly is this context, but most will agree in general this is most likely happening during the Israelites in the wilderness. 
Right? It's, and, and for us, that's a story for us that's happened in the Old Testament. But, but, but Psalm 90 kind of places us in the shoes of the Israelites during that, that time of a day-to-day reality. That as they are struggling in the wilderness for those 40 years, they were meant to enter into that promised land. And if you remember, they sent in spies and they trusted those spies' report of those giants in the land. And the land does not seem like it's... It's really for us. God's promise, but we're going to not trust his word on this one. And we see their continued kind of distrust in the Lord who has saved them out of the house of Egypt in slavery. And in their distrust, they find themselves in the wilderness for 40 years for the waywardness. Well, wisdom for them in these moments was not simply how do we just find our way back? You see, Moses, as he's contemplating this reality of being in the wilderness, he realizes that their very existence and their life is dependent on the Lord. It's as simple as that. The truly wise one, the ones who are truly wise throughout all the ages are those who understand that we are not our own. I think for a lot of us, as we grow in our Christian life, we can often feel like to grow as a Christian is to feel like we are becoming more and more independent or that we are growing more and more self-sufficient. That is not growing in the gospel. To grow in the gospel, in fact, brings about for us a deeper need of our dependence on God. And this is something that Moses wants to stress here, that even in the midst of their wilderness, the answer to their dilemma, as we'll enter in here, is not going to be them. It's not going to even be Moses. It is going to be on the mercies of God. Maybe for some of us here this morning, we are very good at Googling like me. I Google almost everything. But there are some things that just seem unsolvable, don't they? Many of us have entered the doors here to come and worship. It may feel like any other week, but at the same time, it also may be that your seasons and your lots, your life today is filled with great difficulty and trial. Maybe for some of us, we have lost loved ones in this season. I know that has been the case for me, just a simple call home this past week, just wanting to catch up with my parents, and they let me know that a good family friend has suddenly passed away. In whole, that reality brings all the trivial things we're going to talk about and laugh about to a halt. And it almost feels like you gasp for air. It may seem like an extreme, but at the same time, for a lot of us, we understand that the world that we live in is not all crystal clear with joys, but is riddled with sorrow. As we've just even professed our faith through the Westminster Catechism, that this life is full of sin and misery. And if we're being very honest with ourselves, we know it. We feel it. We experience it. And this psalm gives us 
aside of what that wisdom is meant to look like. You know, this psalm, this prayer of Moses, some would even say this is a sort of a community lament psalm. This is a psalm of realizing what their position is and their need for God, their hope resting in God alone. And it's interesting here how Moses begins. He begins not with the issue or the dilemma or the circumstances at hand, this is maybe a great way for us to learn how to pray well. He begins with God and who he is. In other words, what we need more of today in our search for wisdom, in our search to live by grace, is we need more of God. Just look at verses 1 and 2. This is our first point here, that Moses is laying out in the midst of difficulty and trial, in the midst of seeking to live in this fallen world where we sense misery and sin and even the sorrows of life, he points us to the answer right away, a refuge, our refuge. Right, he writes in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. This is how he begins. He does not begin by talking about the dilemma at hand or the circumstances that, that, that caused great grief upon Moses and, and, and the Israelites in the wilderness. But he points back and speaks of who God is. Lord, the sovereign one. You have been our dwelling place which can be translated as refuge, a refuge being a place of protection. Or in other words, maybe if we were to bring it to modern language, Lord, you have been our home. Right? When we think about our homes, we think of a place of rest, but not only of rest, of protection with the roof and the walls around us and our fences, I'm sure, a place where we can take refuge. In times of trouble, this is a great question for many of us to ask. Where do you seek your refuge and rest? Where do you place your security and your comfort and your protection? There's a lot of things that we could list here, and it might just be unhelpful for me to list of all the things that we could but maybe one way that we can maybe diagnose this in our own hearts, in an individual sense, or for our families, is when trouble arises, what's the first thing that we do? What's our first response? Well, Moses, he turns our attention to the Lord, the Sovereign. Lord, you have been our dwelling place, but not just our dwelling place, but in all generations. As he begins to speak about the Lord, as he begins to speak about God, he wants to really highlight this one attribute of God that kind of encompasses all things for us. And he's talking about God who has been their dwelling place, not just for some time or for a little bit or who's kind of come and gone, but from all generations, in all generations. And he goes on to explain that, that reality. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What Moses is trying to do here is, as he's speaking about God who is eternal, God who has no beginning and no end, he's trying to bring it down that this is not just some philosophical thing that's happening here. He's not just wanting us to think about God and his attributes. That is a great thing. 
But he's wanting to say that this reality changes everything of how you live. The God who is eternal, what he is saying here, the one who's brought forth the mountains. Right, if you, I just remember our mission trip that our church has gone on just a couple weeks ago. We were in Oregon, and you can imagine the beauty of creation and the mountains that we were passing. It does not get old for me. I'm sure if you've been to Colorado, it's the same thing, where you are in awe of the grandeur of the mountains. And what Moses is saying is that is so small in comparison to this God who is eternal. That breathtaking nature of what what the mountains do for you is small in comparison when we consider God who is eternal, who has no beginning and no end. Then he goes even further. It's not just the mountains, but even before the earth and the world has been formed. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses, what he is speaking of here is that God is even more stable and secure than the earth that you stand upon today. Praise God for that reality. God, who is eternal, is an unchangeable refuge because he has always been from all generations. He has no beginning and he has no end. In other words, as Moses begins this kind of community lament, the big question is, who else or what else could we ever trust? If we did a, I know I keep going back to our language of technology here, but if we were to do a search history of our hearts, of the ways that we seek to solve the problems and trials or get us through, what would it look like? If you see my Google search history, it's filled with how to, and then it's just a list. <laughs> Maybe for some of you, it's even how to Christian, right? Like. <laughs> Or is it there simply to trust in the Lord? Who else, what else could we ever trust? Who is as firm a foundation as God who is eternal, who has no beginning and no end? As we consider this, Moses is wanting us to lift our eyes to the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, who has no beginning and who has no end, and calling us to trust him, to worship him, to love him, to adore him. He is far more captivating than the mountains, and he is far more captivating than the earth itself. Yeah, in light of this truth, is it not true that as we consider this, it's great for us to hear, and maybe you are resounding in the Presbyterian Amen, which is in the heart, and now vocally. Yet at the same time, we are far more restless and anxious and worried than we ought to be, huh? And here's the thing. God is not unaware of our restlessness. 
Moses is also un, not a, unaware of that as well. In fact, this psalm helps us to see at the very heart of our restlessness, it, it actually is meant to open, us, uh, uh, open a door for us to receive grace and to get a heart of wisdom. And so verses 3 to 11 kind of speaks of this restlessness. First, the reality that Moses paints for us is that our lives are short and fleeting. He writes in verse 3, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Verse 4, For thousands for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. And he'll go on to say in verse 5 and 6, You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. What Moses is getting to here is that our lives are extremely short, and they are fleeting. When you think about yourself, what often is the most frustrating time and the most tiring thing to continue to think about in life? Well, if you're like me, the times I get most frustrated and anxious and worried and upset and even angry is when, our, when my expectations and dreams come to a crashing halt. If you're anything like me, you may be extremely future-oriented, and I'm sure for the parents in this room, you can't but help, and that is a good thing to plan. It is a good thing. But we were never called to plan and, and think through things in such a way in which we believe that these will only come about if we do certain things. We also need the mercies of God. And our lives are subject to his hand and his will. And we are often most frustrated when we come to, the, when we come to this crashing conclusion that oftentimes the control over our lives feels more like an illusion. All right, we've got plans, we've got dreams, we've got what our lives should look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. We pursue those things with all due, 100% strength and vigor. And yet when it seems as if the Lord turns us a different direction, rather than trusting the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, we may point our fingers and say, how dare you? God. In other words, what are those things in our lives that we have deemed to the Lord as untouchable and unchangeable? That, that he has gifted us with to steward. Everything in our life, including the breath that we breathe this morning, is a very gift from the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And yet, if we search deep in our hearts, there are certain things that we say, God, we're going to put some tape around this part of my life. Just don't touch it. It's pretty good. Well, in the midst of all of these things, Moses, as he seeks for his people and for God's people to get a heart of wisdom, is to first realize the reality. Our lives are short and fleeting. He almost reflects here on the fall in Genesis 3. We kind of see similar language there in verse 3 here. Of You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. What Moses is saying and, and pointing out here is that the world that we live in is not the way that it should be. That sin has brought something of disarray to the beautiful created world and even in our lives. There's something disjoint 
in the world today, in our own lives today. It's where we begin to look at God's world and the, the very things he's given as gifts to, to lead us to worship the giver, and we've sought them as gain and, and things for us to gain and for us to find rest in. This is kind of what the preacher in Ecclesiastes really gets to, is that we take the good things that God gives and we twist them and we make them ugly because we try to have them be gods in themselves to gain from them when they're never meant to be such things, but to actually turn us to the giver, to worship him, to love him, to use all the gifts for the sake of his glory and his honor. And Moses is going to bring forth this reality. As we see, death seems so natural, it is not. He's not just saying the issue of our lives is that we are limited, that our lives are short and fleeting. He's he's using that as sort of a a case study of of speaking to the deeper thing at hand. And he gets to this in verses 7 and 8 and verses 9 and 10 when he talks about the anger of God. And we see God who is eternal, who is from everlasting to everlasting. But in contrast to that, we see our lives where we are not from everlasting to everlasting. And he goes on to speak about the, the deep source of all of this is that God is angry. He's like, oh no, what did the preacher just say? God is angry with sin. Your sin and my sin. we're talking here in this reality of, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, in that specific light, when we're thinking about our own sin, it's it's to even think about, do we distrust God at his word that he is truly the best dwelling place for us? And so Moses gives this reason, and then we see that in verses 7 verse 9 when he begins with the word for. He's giving us the reason for this reality at hand, this, this restlessness of our hearts. It's our, ang- or it's our sin and God's righteous anger and wrath over our sin. And so as Moses is directing the gaze of us and, and, and all of God's people to God who is holy and perfect and eternal, who does not change, who is majestic, we see our sin. And it kind of puts us into the shoes of the Israelites even in their time of wilderness. But their day-to-day existence in the wilderness would be this grand reminder that God, yes, has been a dwelling place. He has been the one who was liberated, who has freed, who has brought them out of the hand of Egypt. He is the one who has parted the Red Sea. He is the one who provided manna and quail. He is the one who has fed them. He is the one who takes the bitter waters and makes them delicious to drink. He is the one who has been with them day and night, leading them. He himself, as a tabernacle, is to be brought up in worship. He reminds them that he is a God of covenant promises and who will not leave his people aside. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we see the hearts of God's people distrust, distrust, and distrust. I remember leading a Bible study at my former ministry in Orlando. That's where I'm originally from. Going through the Exodus. And I remember one of the gentlemen in, in that study saying, wow, these Israelites, they're kind of the worst in the wilderness. And it's easy for us to kind of point the fingers and say, 
oh yeah, they're, I would not do that. But scripture, like a mirror for our own lives, reveals we are far more like them than not. There would be countless examples that I can list in my own life of the ways I have distrusted God at his word. Doesn't that come back all the way down to Genesis 3? What was that serpent doing? What was that serpent's original kind of question of bringing doubt and distrust in Eve's own heart? Did God really say that? Isn't it true that we have delighted in other things? We have sought other things to give us rest. That we have even sought things on this side of eternity, here under the sun, here on earth. And maybe for some of us, the solutions to our problems are things that we believe that if God were to just change this sort of thing, if God were to just change my spouse or my children, if God were to just change my bank account, if God were just to even change the, maybe the nature of our church, I don't know, dare, us, dare we even say that? The list goes on that we believe that that would bring us more rest. But did God really say that? So Moses does a good job here in reminding us, even before we get to all this nitty-gritty stuff, God is eternal. He is our dwelling place. He alone is the one who can offer rest in the midst of our restlessness. You see, when we are faced with the reality of the sins and misery of the world, of the sorrows that we face, of even death itself, and that's what kind of Moses will get to here as we begin to talk about our short lives of the 70, of the 80 years, and yet even in the midst of those years, as much as there are some glimmers of joy, at the end of the day, the span of most of our days are filled with toil and trouble. For some reason, as you get older, everyone's bodies begin to hurt. I don't know why that is. This is that was maybe a side note. <laughs> that Their span is but toil and trouble. And what's the reward, it seems, at the end? that you're soon gone and your life flies away. It's an uncomfortable reality that we face here. And in the midst of this, the world offers really two solutions that really the Bible speaks against. The two solutions that the world might offer is to simply cover it up in these two ways. One might be to pretend. Pretend it's not as bad as it really is. Pretend that we're not as bad as we really are in our sin before a holy God. It's easy for them for us to point at the other things or the other people and say, well, we're not as bad, we're not as sinful, we're not as much as in need of grace <laughs> as those other people, right? Bless their heart. The other way in which that we are maybe prone to want to cover up that the way that the world calls for us is to perform. If we just do enough, then surely God will come through. Because doesn't he know all that I've done for him? Hasn't he known how many hours I've spent in prayer for this particular situation and this person? How I've given generously of my time and money and energy? 
And it's easy for us to try to cover up this reality of, of trying to bridge this gap between God who is eternal and holy and us and our sinfulness and trying to solve this solution on our own. And we think that's wise for us to try to do. Try to pretend, try to perform. Praise God that in the inspired word that we have here that Moses does not end the psalm simply there. Because I hope the question that might come to your mind is then simply, what do we do with all of this? Because obviously the answer that Moses is getting to for us is saying, we can't pretend our way to bridge the gap and we can't perform our way to do so either. In fact, that is very unwise. Well, Moses begins to get at this, starting in verse 11. He asks us to consider, not to cover up, but to consider the power of God's anger and the wrath according to the fear of you. He calls us to really, really dive deep and consider that God is eternal and holy who has wrath over sin. But not to end there, but to consider your own sinfulness. That second part is often much harder. In other words, maybe a case study for us, or maybe a thought experiment in some ways, if you are the only person here on earth, (laughs) which maybe for some of you, if you're an introvert like me, that sounds glorious, have your books, just read them. But if you're the only person here on earth, do you realize that God's salvation and redemption work of Jesus having to come, be born of the flesh, to take on flesh, to live the perfect life, to die and satisfy the wrath of God, to be raised from the grave, to be ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand, to come back again, that that good news, that gospel news would still be the same? that your need for Christ would be all the same, or the need for him would be the same, that Jesus would still have to do what he has done, even if you were the only person left on earth. It's to, it's to show the, the, the reality of our sin before a holy God, that we have all deeply fallen short, that our iniquities, even our hidden sins, our secret sins, are in the light of his presence. Just imagine that. It's not just the sins that are able to be seen. It's the very things that as we're sitting here, as I'm standing here, that the Lord sees our thoughts and the good that we've left undone, the words that we've spoken in our minds about other folks. If that were to all simply be displayed, if there was some sort of x-ray technology that could bring all of that to bear, and we're able to put all of this on a screen of some sort, and we're able to see every single thought that we have thought, or every thought that we haven't thought of good, or the things that we've spoken, or the things that we should have spoken, or the things that we've done, or the things that we should have done, if all these things were laid before us, What great restlessness there would be over our hearts. And Moses says before the eternal God, he sees 
them all. He sees them all. And yet, I think this is where Paul's words begin to become all the more poignant here. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. This is the mercy, the steadfast love that Moses will begin to talk about here that he is pointing the saints to. The Lord who is our dwelling place in all generations See how he keeps his covenant promises even when we were covenant breakers. And then he gives us these two life resolutions or resolves. The first is that we get wisdom as we consider this. We get wisdom in verses 12 to 15 that, we would, that, that the Lord would teach us to number our days. In other words, today is a gift. We can go on worrying about tomorrow, the things that tomorrow will bring, and we know those words from Jesus himself, right? Do not be anxious. You might even have that in your home. This is a reminder for us again. Live in light of today. We are not sure if we have tomorrow. But until today, or until if we have today, let us rejoice in the Lord. Let us not simply think about we'll do the things of the Lord tomorrow, or the week to come, or the weeks to come, or the months to come today. Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Another part of this getting wisdom is that we would be satisfied in God's steadfast love. Maybe for some of us, we have grown up in the church for a very long time, and we understand the facts of the gospel, but maybe that grace of the Lord has become so unamazing to you. I remember I was just talking with one of our church members this other day who was going through quite a bit of chronic illness and who's coming the terms after he's been going and, and seeing some doctors and things like that, getting more diagnosis of, um, of, of just the, of the things that he's going through, and it's going to be a hard life ahead of him. And yet he has been finding much comfort reading through the Gospels. In other words, as he sees the person in the life of Jesus, he has continued, or he's continually in wonder of this God-man. The things he says, the way he interacts, the questions he asks, the way he lays his life down for those who don't deserve it. Has the grace of our Lord become unamazing to you? Has it not satisfied you? If it has not satisfied you, I'll say there's been a perversion of the gospel in your mind. Because when we come face to face with who this person is, this Jesus that God has provided, the eternal Son of God, 
the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, to take on flesh for your sake, for our sins, that we might be forgiven, that we may be right with God, that death itself would lose its sting and its hold, that it would actually become a doorway for us and a portal into life everlasting with him, to know God is our dwelling place, the place of complete refuge and protection. How can we not be satisfied? Is he enough? And if he is not, as we number our days, we ask the Lord in prayer, this is a prayer from Moses, that we would be satisfied. A call with this as well, as we ask for God to satisfy in the morning with his steadfast love, that we would rejoice and be glad all our days, that, that what he means by that is that we would rejoice as, as, as many as the days that we have been afflicted or as many as the years that we have seen evil. In, in other words, rejoice in God's redemption. See him who reverses the curse. See him who is not leaving the curse undone and just creating something new, but who is taking and, and, and bringing restoration and redemption. That there will be a day, as we know, as, as Jesus comes back again, where all things will be made new. We may not know that in full yet, but we know of what God has spoken. And so rejoice. Rejoice. I don't want to minimize that in the, on this side of eternity that we are filled, our lives are filled with great sorrow and even miseries and toil. Moses understands it, but at the same time, in the midst of that, this is kind of the, the irony, so to speak, is that God calls us to rejoice, not in our circumstances, but because God himself is our dwelling place. And when we look to Jesus we have the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, Emmanuel. He is with us. He has not left our side. He is able to make glad. Even in the midst of our afflictions, suffering, and sorrows. But as we consider that, the second life, resolve or life resolution is that we live by grace. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glory's power to their children. In other words, how do we live by grace? Well, see the work and power of God day to day. God is always and presently at work in the hearts of the saints, but also out in the world. He is Lord he is sovereign. He is not just the creator, but he is also the Lord of providence. There's not one nook or cranny in the world or in history where it's kind of left God's sight. He has been in charge from the start, and he will always be. And in light of that, if God is always at work, and if our call is that God would make us more aware of his very present work at hand, that, that he is bringing all this to bear, that this work is his, his work of redemption. We see in verse 17, so we live in this day that the Lord has made, and we ask him to establish the work of our hands. This is not merely talking about your vocations and your careers. That's part of it. But this is maybe more broadly speaking for parents, that as you parent, for children, as you take the work up as being children, 
and students, for the elders, for the work of elders, <laughs> for the deacons, for the work of deacons, for friend, as being a good friend, and all of these works that we ask that the Lord and we understand that there is no fruit apart from the Lord's blessing and favor. all this to say, Moses is seeking for us to consider. Consider this day the eternal God, the depths of our sin, but to not restlessly end there, but to consider also the work of God's redemption through the sending of Christ Jesus. Consider him who, being one with the Father, who willingly came to dwell amongst us in flesh and blood. Consider Christ who lived the perfect life, delighting in his Father and his will despite the great sorrows that he would face. Consider Christ who joyfully took up the cross to bear the Father's wrath over your sins, that you might be forgiven, that your sins would be taken as far as the east is from the west, that Christ would be our propitiation, meaning to satisfy, maybe an image for us, and that is, it's like a sponge soaking up all of God's wrath, and there is nothing left for you if you are in Christ. Consider Christ who is the one that the grave and death could not hold, but in fact that he was raised up for our justification. Consider Christ who, out of his steadfast love, is currently, right now, interceding and praying for his saints and who has empowered his people by his Holy Spirit being renewed day by day until the day he comes again. And consider Christ who is coming back again and who will make all things new. In light of all of this and getting wisdom and living by grace, the call is consider Christ today. Rest in him and his finished work. To know that when Christ says it is finished, you can rest. That doesn't mean that you just don't go about doing anything. We see that here, but we now go and live in all the various spheres of life that he's called us to, for his sake, for his glory, we do the best that we can with what God has given us, the lot that he has apportioned to us, and we steward those for his glory. And I just end with this. I spoke about that family friend that I got a call from my parents about as we considered. And it's just funny how it's in those moments that you begin to consider someone's life. It reminds me of a senior capstone project I had in, during my undergrad and we walked into our classroom, and my professor goes, all right, sit down, take out your notebook, and we're going to start with you writing your eulogy. I I don't know where to start with that. (laughs) But in the midst of that, I remember that because of this woman. Uh, I mean, she's battled and has had health complications continually throughout her life. She's battled breast cancer, survived that for years beyond what we could have imagined. Before that diagnosis, years before, she was a faithful children's director over our Awana clubs and various other things in church. I remember when I was in seminary and I was working at the church, she would often be praying for me, excited for what the Lord had in store. Grew up with her kids as well in youth group, things like that. She only reached about her 60s. She had a sudden complication with organ failure this past weekend. 
she, she went to be with the Lord. Something we could not have seen coming, something that the family could not have seen coming, and yet her prayer that the Lord would establish the work of her hands goes beyond her lived out life on this earth. The ways that she parented her children, the way she's impacted even my own ministry and life through her prayers, this is the favor of the Lord. And I say all of this, it's funny how it's easy for us to think great things and we should pray big things. But let's begin with today. Lord, teach us to number our days. Let us live in the grace of the Lord. Let us live resting in Christ. So this morning, let us consider Christ, but let us not just merely consider. Let us worship him. Let us trust him. Let us rest in him. May all glory be to God. Would you please pray with me? God, we thank you that you are the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, a God who has cared for your people more than we could ever ask or even imagine, the God who is our dwelling place in all generations. God, help us to remember that. Lord, help us to remember our own shortness of life so that, Lord, that we may get a heart of wisdom Lord, as we get a heart of wisdom that we would live by your grace, would live in light of what Christ has done, would live by his strength, would live by resting in him, knowing that he has been the remedy that you have provided for us. And Lord, it's easy for us to be distracted in this world, but Lord, we ask that you would keep our eyes considering Christ. May our hearts be ravished by the amazing grace that is our salvation. And Lord, we ask that you would establish the work of our hands. Our hands are weak. They are frail. We do not know what fruit can be produced from them, but Lord, we do know that if your favor is upon this and the work of our hands, Lord, that we ask that you would bless it so, that the proclamation of your gospel would comfort the saints, would grow us to be more like Christ, and Lord, that people would come to hear the good news of what you have provided in Christ. To the glory of your name, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.